Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. In the First World War and for the first time in the history of man, nations combined to fight against nations using the crude weapons of those days. The Second World War involved every continent on the globe, and men turned to science for new devices of warfare, which reached an unparalleled peak in their capacity for destruction. And now, fought with the terrible weapons of super science, menacing all mankind and every creature on Earth, comes the War of the World. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace of the Past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside, so hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo is going to get invaded by Martians again, but instead of only hearing an invasion, this time you get to see the invasion, courtesy of special effects direction wizard Brian ha- Byron Haskin and special effects producer extraordinaire George Powell, for in 1953 they embarked on adapting an ambitious novel by the one and only H.G. Wells and managed to contemporize it in a way that has stood the test of time. Ladies and gentlemen, please sit back for George Powell's presentation of War of the Worlds. See the show? Stay behind for the discussion to delight the earbuds. the beginning of the end for the human race, for what men first thought were meteors or the often ridiculed flying saucers are in reality the flaming vanguard of the invasion from Mars. Looks like they're going to come out of that gully pretty soon. We'll have to rush our defenses to be ready when they do. Guards need plenty of reinforcements. We'll get them. Lieutenant, look! They slash across country like scythes. Wiping out everything that's trying to get away from them. That explains why communication is cut the moment their machines begin moving. Montreal's blacked out. Nothing more has come through. Same thing that happened on the Pacific Coast. 
Anything from them yet? No, Mr. Secretary. We've had nothing from San Francisco for over five hours. The nations of the world mobilize their armed might, rushing to defend the Earth against the unknown weapon of the super race from the Red Planet. Is there nothing that can stop the Martian death machines? Guns, tanks, bombs. They're like toys against them. We know now that we can't beat their machines. We've got to beat them. All over the world, human beings cower before the onslaught of these unearthly enemies, whom no one has ever seen. Panic that sweeps around the globe as the great masses of mankind flee blindly in a headlong stampede of hysteria. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1953, George Powell and Byron Haskin managed to put on screen the thing that terrified the nation over over a decade prior on radio and managed to somehow cultivate something that equals in terms of its impressive value to the cinematic landscape and to the pop culture landscape. Everything from visual effects on down to elements of storytelling have managed to find their way into the films we see today. But what are those ways? That, they, that, is, that it has inspired the present landscape, and how influential is this iteration of War of the Worlds? Well, I can't do this alone, so with us is a long-overdue return guest uh, who you did hear in our previous War of the Worlds discussion as nerd number two, um, or Snyderverse fan, uh, but when he is not acting in these little projects, he is a co-host of Real Nerds Podcast, he is a filmmaker out in the Denver area, and I think might be the only person left in Colorado that I can talk to about Star Trek. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the show, Bradley Haig. Hey, Zach, what am I doing here? <laughs> we, yeah, what are you doing here? I I've, we, we remember, if for anybody who's been listening as far back as Shamley said the way on, everybody knows that Brad hates old shit. He just hates it, can't I don't it. hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I had my... A golden Hollywood phase in college. I'm like <laughs> oh, it was ten just years older than you, and it was, it was just a phase. Your parents told you that, right? You were just like, it's just a phase. You'll get over it. No, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was in, you know, film school. I'm doing air quotes for those of you <laughs> uh, listening at home. Uh, and you know, I was like, I should listen to the, cla- I should watch the classics. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I bought a bunch of DVDs. I watched a, uh, most of them, and then, uh, yeah, th- these days I just, you know, feel like I should, uh, you know, a lot of people appreciate these movies, mm-hmm. and I feel like. You know, I could be of better use championing the new stuff. Yes, that people don't get yes. as much attention. And I think that's a good thing, though. Like yeah. you're not like, and and the the whole idea of yesteryear in general is not just limited to this era. Obviously, we've honed in on a specific era that probably will expand in the coming year because of ideas that have been thrown out by our mutual friend Matty Ghost uh, and um, Andrew Bueno, but. Uh, I think it's good to champion the new stuff. I think it's good to champion the things that either this films like this might have inspired because they're the next step, they're the next evolution. These are the films that youngins watching now are going to be 
calling classics when they're 55 fucking years old. Yeah. So it's this, this stuff is the first drafts of cinema. <laughs> exactly. But the first drafts of cinema are fun to discuss. This particular film, though, has been long discussed as an option for us to do on the show. Because I like having you on. Um, having you come aboard for Batman <laughs> was a lot of fun because you're a Batman fan. Um, Easy one to do. Yeah. This one, though, uh, you took an interest in the criterion of this film because of the artwork. Because the artwork is very stark and yeah. lovely for the criterion. It's so gorgeous. You, so you, I, I wanted to ask, did you pick up the film on Criterion based on that cover alone? A little was, bit. I mean, it, it was a 50% off sale, but so I was like, right. <laughs> I'm getting Paz Labyrinth, Labyrinth. What else should I get? Mm-hmm. So, you know, some other things that I want hadn't come out yet. So I was like, you know, War of the Worlds. Um, I actually find the radio play, Orson Welles' performance, the mo- more interesting mm-hmm. experience and story. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I felt, okay, well, I know a little bit about that. Let's check out the movie version. Obviously, I've seen the Spielberg version. Yes. In 2005. So that's great. And uh, yeah, that's, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll roll the dice on this classic because I, I want more cri- more Criterions. And, and Wes what? Anderson doesn't put out enough. <laughs> enough. <laughs> I think the Grand Budapest is the last one. So we're like four films behind now. If you, if you want to get, if you want to write him, all you've got to do is just stand outside of his next premiere. It's not a stalker thing. You stand outside the next premiere, and the moment he comes up in front of your eye shot, you just hold up a sign that says, hurry the fuck up. Yeah, hey, guys, <laughs> stop being lazy. <laughs> Let's get these done. Stop meticulously detailing your next movie and instead meticulously transfer over your previous films to Blu-ray. Yeah, <laughs> it's very That's, easy. Yeah, that blows my mind. None of his uh, films are 4K mm-hmm. Blu-rays no, yet. You think it's taking a long time to get them to Blu-ray? It's gonna take even longer to get them the 4K. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he's gonna go through each one. And like, I, I, I'm sure Criterion could just be like, "Oh, bottle rocket, boop, slap it up, mm-hmm. put a new export in 4K out from like the original master they have." And but I'm sure Wes is like, "No, no, I gotta see it first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've gotta, I've gotta, I gotta examine every single pixel that's going through yeah. the conversion." <laughs> um, but uh, so I want to know though, because you mentioned the Spielberg War of the Worlds, which I think is the the way a lot of people around our age probably got into this story. I'm I'm a fucking freak. So I got into it radio play first, this film that we're talking about today, then War of the Worlds uh, by Steven Spielberg. So I technically went up the the proper chain, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um when you picked it up, did you like and you watched it like does was was there at least an acknowledgement of as as primitive as the special effects are about like what they're basically accomplishing with you know, like twigs and <laughs> twigs and uh, glue. <laughs> no, as I watched it, I, yeah, I appreciated the the effects of like for that time, mm-hmm. like and with given the restoration, I don't know how much they improved since people watched it in mm. yeah 1953. You said um, that you know the one I watched might have been cleaner. Um, I think and so. More saturated. And, and there's a, well, there's also a there's a behind the scenes thing about that that. Gave me the impression that we we've definitely seen a better print than might have been available. Yeah, at that the original point. audiences. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I as I was watching it, it you know, the story is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, there's not a lot of character development. <laughs> it's okay. You I, you it's, could say the same thing that I'm going to say in a minute. Yeah, everything just kind of goes from A to B, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm sure that's the. I haven't read the original H.G. Wells story, so mm-hmm. I can't say for sure how accurate. It is, but um, yeah, I, I did marvel. Like, wow, those effects are really pretty good given, mm-hmm. you know, the era. Yeah. So, and actually pretty. I watched the sort of making of uh, bonus feature on it, 
and they're, they're talking about like how the, the the city models like the miniatures are actually huge yeah and uh yeah the yeah, the the shields for the the Martian spacecrafts are like this jar. Mm-hmm. It's like filmed against the black, and so. Did you watch both of them on the Criterion? Not to cut you off, but there were there was the Sky is Falling, which is the like. I think that's the only one I watched. Okay, there was another one called Movie Archaeologist with Ben Burt. Yeah, I missed uh, that and one. Craig Barron. That one goes into even greater detail. I really encourage you to watch oh, that I'll, one. Yeah, I'll get around to it. That but. that one like basically eliminate all of the whole. This is how George Powell got to Paramount. This is how he got to the movie. It really hones in and focuses. And I've got some stuff from it, but yeah, you're you're right. Like that stuff, the whole that like the idea of the shields, the the ideas yeah. of how they're accomplishing these miniatures, and then the creature effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you know the alien was finished like right on time, mm-hmm. and so the 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 glaze or whatever is still dripping off the monster, and how it could have nearly <laughs> like fucking injured somebody yeah. puppeting it. But then they like to solve a problem of all the wires. They're like, oh, just build it into like veins on the thing. Mm-hmm. So they did that, and then there's like a person below like pumping air through them. So they they're blowing, the yeah, yeah, they're blowing, yeah. It's like a it's a, in fact for the final shot that we'll talk about later, it's actually a matter of sucking back air in, which I thought was really cool. Of just like it's and you have to time that too. That's kind of like. It's for me when with these visual effects films, it's not even just the processes they're going through. There's choreography attached to it because outside of uh, a process that we know today with mapping or green screen, you're having to choreograph the movement of a puppet or a model or a building and every single aspect of camera lighting Everything he has to be like synchronized to the absolute effect it needs to be, or otherwise you're going again. And the more you have to go again, the more money's going through the camera because it's film and not digital. Yeah, and Technicolor, I, which they even he, talked about. Like, there's oh, three reels for that. Yeah, three reels stuck inside that camera. It's about as big as a person. Have to stay aligned. Yeah. And I actually would imagine that, unlike some filmmakers we've talked about who told the Technicolor consultants to go fuck themselves on many occasion. Uh, this is one that probably adhered to the standards because it looks, it doesn't look as distinctive as other Technicolor films coming out around this time. But for context for people who don't know this, Technicolor was run by, uh, it was cre- it was a lab process created by uh, uh, Dr. Kalmus and his eventual ex-wife, Natalie Kalmus, became basically the overall tech supervisor for uh, Technicolor at that time and basically it for a while it was if you want your movie to be in technicolor you have to take natalie kalmus or one of her color consultants and she was a micromanager from hell uh who if you deviated anywhere from her standards of what color was she'd fucking lose it on you and there's a lot of directors who changed that um to their advantage and fought that like john houston fought it for his version of moulin rouge um but a film like this, by the standards of what we consider color to be and having heard no stories about them fighting with the color department, I can see why the standard was something they wanted to adhere to because this movie looks gorgeous in color. Um, but uh, I want to talk about the story too for a second because I have not watched this movie in over two decades. Uh, the first time I watched it was after finding out about the radio broadcast and before the Spielberg movie. And I thought it was fine. 
Um, but I was more excited for the Spielberg one because my thinking was, well, we live in an advanced world where he's going to adapt the novel verbatim. And I was wrong. Uh, he did not. <laughs> David yeah. Kep did not adapt the novel. Frankly, nobody's adapted this novel properly unless it's maybe for television or bo uh, or some kind of public domain movie. Uh, the novel takes place in Victorian times, mm -hmm. and it's very, in a lot of ways, it's a first-person account, um, which is interesting because first-person singular, the radio uh, structure that, war that Wells utilized back in the Mercury th days, uh, deviates from that to do the news reports and then goes back into first-person um, uh, by the end. So watching this film again, I like cheesy sci-fi films. If I didn't, I probably wouldn't be as big a mystery science theater fan as I am. Uh, and watching this without an MST3K commentary uh, existing in the world sort of depressed me while at the same time being entertained by the movie that was unfolding. Because this, as good as this movie is, it does deserve an MST3K commentary. Uh, I guess, yeah. I think it's it's not as goofy as other sci-fi films. And it's... Uh, one of the people on the, the making of said, like, this at one point was AFI's, like, 20th greatest mm -hmm. film of all time. Yeah. So it has some pedigree to it that I think MS3K just doesn't touch. Right. It's yeah. it's not has nothing to do with the effects looking cheap and has nothing to do with any of the action sequences that they normally take to task. It has to do with these characters. Yeah, I was going to say, I think a lot of the MS3 jokes would be based around misogyny. and Misogyny. Um, uh, hysteria. I, yeah, I think uh, Gene Barry is a fine actor, but he definitely uh, sounds like the, the Rex Banner <laughs> type <laughs> of uh, stilted hero that you, that you would imagine these 50 sci-fi movies to have. Like, and, and the beats are very similar to a point, but they do manage to adhere to overall concepts in the novel. Uh, the big ones being the prologue, which everybody does the prologue, no matter what. The prologue is just, you never not do the prologue. Uh, and, and the after, um, after, uh, the after, uh, the, the afterward, which is the whole like, and then the aliens died because of this spoiler alert. We'll, we'll talk about that later, but, uh, but the, but the story, what I found interesting was that the story that was pitched initially and that George Powell approved of as producer had a story more involving what you kind of see in the Tom Cruise movie. The Tom Cruise film deals with a man, a, a father trying to get his kids to his mom, to their mom, like across states and whatever. And Rotary, the yeah. Yeah. The original story that, one of the original stories that was pitched for this was a fighter pilot trying to get back to the woman he loved, which sounds more interesting <laughs> than the whole, oh, uh, professor, uh, undergrad professor or whatever meets the big famous professor and then they fall in love in five minutes, which I normally don't care how fast people fall in love in movies. In this case, it's a little rough to swallow. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely a love at first sight thing. And it's not helped by the the priest being like, well, I'm going to walk to my desk now. By the way, you should really hook up with that guy. <laughs> it is such a great line. It's just like, I really like that yeah. man. He's okay. a good man. Time to die. <laughs> I think I've only known him for 10 minutes, too. I, but I'm a man of God, and God has told me he's good. He's very good. 
probably in the sack too, if you know what I mean, <laughs> Denise. <laughs> um, it's kind of weird for the for the pastors. Like my last act is to basically play OK Cupid for you, <laughs> give you. <laughs> um, yeah. But how do we get to War of the Worlds, making it to the big screen? Because it's obviously we've talked about the radio show on this program before. Um, which, by the way, guys, I am still alive. The aliens didn't actually kill me. Um, uh, sorry to disappoint you all. <laughs> I know Brad was the most disappointed when he found out I was still alive. I paid those aliens a lot to <laughs> kill was, you. And it they was totally... y- you the entire time? You son of a bitch. <laughs> t- took my money and ran. <laughs> or f- flew away. Well, the aliens are played by Henry Jarvis, so it makes sense that Henry would con you. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, this property being desired by Hollywood predates the whole Martian invasion uh, radio broadcast. Uh, Jesse Lasky had a Paramount purchased these rights in the 1920s. Uh, in fact, he got it in 1924 to the dismay of H.G. Wells' son who said, I want to make a movie of your novel, Dad. And H.G. Wells went, well, too bad because I just sold the rights. And I'll tell you something else, son. Um, it's not going to work as a movie because you'd have to contemporize it and it's impossible to contemporize this Victorian story. So I conned him. Um, so <laughs> I am a genius. <laughs> I am a genius. I'm the father of sci-fi and world's greatest criminal. <laughs> I oh, <don't>... no. Orson <laughs> Wells did not see that coming. Hey, yes. <laughs> Damn you. You boy genius. Um, Now, uh, there were a couple of people interested in this property. Another among the people who kind of instigated the purchase is a gentleman we've talked about before, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, DeMille making this movie would have been... I kind of want to see that movie. Um, I don't know if the story would have been any better. But man, maybe the effects budget would have. If the effects we're seeing now are are just as awe gazing and inspiring, imagine what they would have been with a Demille budget. It would have been, it probably would have been a bigger hit than Gone with the Wind. <laughs> um, gonna throw that out there. Um, now uh, there are other directors that were potentially interested in this story, and Ann Robinson, um, one of our actors today, um, who was really an like one of the earliest champions of this film's legacy down the line. You, uh, Gene Barry apparently took a while to kind of warm up to it in his career, but Anne Robinson's, this being one of her few leading roles, she champions this, and it's really cool to watch her champion a sci-fi movie from that era. But she, uh, she pointed out, and as others have pointed out, that another person who was interested in making this film was our old pal, Mr. Alvin Hitchcock, which I don't know if I'd want that. <laughs> I don't know if he would have made... I think it probably would have been closer to the Spielberg route. Yeah. Very character driven rather than event driven. Yeah, yeah. Um what if what if the what if the Martians uh dressed up as their mother and uh killed all the humans? Uh I don't know if the problem that I have with it is not that he can't handle scale. Clearly he can. You've seen North by Northwest, he can do a a, a map hopping adventure. I just feel like it, it I just don't feel like it would grab you the same way that maybe Spielberg would have. Um, the one thing, though, that would have been interesting if he had done it is he likes doing POV. He likes very specific, particular shots. There's a world where we might have gotten a little bit of POV of the Martians, um, even more so than we kind of get here. We get some kind of a version of that in the lab later on. But I would imagine he would have played with perspective more, which would have been interesting. 
Um, again, not saying I wouldn't want it, but you know, like uh, I'm not going to go back into a time machine and tell Hitch you have to make this instead of Lifeboat because um, I like Lifeboat. I want him to make that movie, not War of the Worlds. Um, now, uh, Wells again said this can't work. It's not contemporary. It's Victorian. I'm a con artist. Ha 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 ha. But then, as you said, Orson Welles says, oh, yeah, watch me, old man, and uh, scares half the nation um, in in ways not specific to the legend. For more information, listen to that previous episode. Um, yeah, and I want to see that movie. Yeah. Uh, someone does some kind of radio event, and people take it as real, and then... Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it happens. The world goes bananas. Yeah. Like somebody's had to have that. made that, right? Like, I feel like they have, but like I think in this moment in time, given people's reaction to news these days, mm-hmm. like you could really even more contemporize it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was what we, that's what the whole like scripted version of the episode that we did was supposed to kind of do. I'm not a good satirist by any stretch, but that was the goal is like, oh, can we play around with the idea? Of uh of of our reaction to news and whatnot. Yeah. You're right though. Like having people make it's almost like you would do a half found footage movie and then half of it be um, a third person narrative. Uh, and I'm sure somebody has done something like that because there are a yeah. ton of. I mean, Cloverfield's probably kind of the same vein mm-hmm. in in that regard. Paranormal um, Activity didn't like you know it's fake, but. Their marketing campaign was really good, uh, similar to Blair Witch Project. Very good at convincing you this actually happened. Like yeah. it comes very close to me being like, "Well, maybe." <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't want to piss off the ghosts by saying they're not real, but my skepticism is telling me this is bullshit. <laughs> um, so, like, maybe if you did it like that, it's almost like you need to you need to interrupt it, and that's kind of the part of the problem with. Uh, doing it as a broadcast now is that there's so many, there's other standards in place beyond even the ones that would have come after the War of the Worlds broadcast. But yeah. I think it would work best as technically a news television. You know what? It should be a television event. Like they should do it as a television event, like a Ghost Watch. To, you just have to make sure the legal department's <laughs> on top of everything. Well, I think with cell phones now, you couldn't generate the hysteria part because instantly people would be like, is this real? And then they just find out that no one's reporting on it. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, unless you're doing an IG Live thing or something like yeah. that, and then all of a sudden... Back like when Blair Witch came out, you know, it was still like micro, uh, AOL online. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, Everything's booting up. You, you not to... everything had a, its own website. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I go... Uh, it was in Google at the time, but yeah, I, just, I would search the internet and be like, is this real? Like, it like it, but... <laughs> Yeah, so, and that was only, like, yeah, 1999, so. Mm-hmm. Take like, you forever to download a picture of Captain Picard or something like that if yeah. you wanted it so, on your But desktop. even, like, I mean, it feels recent, but it's, you know, more than 20 years ago. But, yeah, like, even back then, like, that recent, you still couldn't, like, mm-hmm. have that access to information as you can today. You know what would be amazing is if somebody tried to do it, but they used that um, mapping tech, um, for environmental backgrounds that they're using on Mandalorian and stuff like oh, that. The volume. The, the vo- yeah. Yeah. That whole thing, you might be able to pull it off or like do something with it. You know. Yeah. Um, Another version I, I think you could do is um, like I would just like to see. You know how like a lot of documentaries will come out and then they do like a dramatization of that documentary. Yes. So it would be cool to just be like 
have a movie about Orson Welles doing the radio play and causing the hysteria. And then suddenly, it's like a dramatized version. Yeah. And then suddenly the aliens break out. I like that idea. That's a nice. Oh, one. like they actually come out. I was thinking of that. Oh well, you, oh. you could fictionalize it too, I guess. I well, I've always, I've always kept. This is, I mean, we'll get back to the fifty-three version, but I have to tell you this. Ever since I was a freshman in high school, I have fiddled around scripting a dramatization of how they did the broadcast. And I figured out how you do it so that you can do at least a good chunk of the 40 minutes where it's a news broadcast. You have to do it as one continuous take, going through each of the actors as they're cued to appear on the broadcast. And then as things are winding down, you move away from the broadcast to the police pounding on the door or to Davidson pounding on the door going like, you have to stop. Um, uh, I think you could split it too. Also like show some, you know, um, rural family that like tunes into the radio and then goes on a, you know, tries to escape and then they like go cross country and then they find out by the end of the movie that it was all fake. Mm. And then the repercussions of like, you know, obviously they'd be pissed. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Maybe someone got injured in, on that journey. Yeah. Uh, so they like have a personal grudge against Orson Welles. It be, yeah, it, it, that's a good idea. Not only that, you could all like. I think it's it's sort of like a Spielberg idea in this respect. My idea is do it from the perspective of a kid because the one factoid that I love about that broadcast is, uh, kids would have known this was bullshit before adults would have because kids were already used to mystery programs, horror programs drama programs on the radio they're growing up with the technology it's like it's like your it's like if your mom doesn't know how to use an ipad but her grandchild does because he's grown up with it his whole life they have the same effect with radio it'd be great to do it from a perspective of a kid watching his entire adult community go fucking nuts (laughs) um but so like those are i so those ideas of any kind of a war of the world's movie we're talking about them today. They're talking about them as far back as 1938 after this broadcast. That's the film people want Orson Welles to make when he goes out to Hollywood. And he goes, no, what if I make a movie that's somewhat as good as Paddington 2? And that's what he ends up doing. But they really tried to pressure him to do it. Um, and RKO, at one point, like that was the one when they polled uh, an audience saying, what do you want Wells to do now that he's with our studio? That was the top answer. We want War of the Worlds. In order to for them to have done it, RKO would have had to make a deal with Paramount. Um, and at this point, the the project just kind of lays dead. Um, but then enter George Powell. We're not going to do George Powell's biography here because he's known for another big, big creation, which is Puppet Tunes. Stop motion animation that is incredibly fluid, uh, he's basically Art Clokey before Art Clokey um, in terms of creating short little comedy films with stop motion. Um, but by this point, he has already produced a special effects-driven film for Paramount called Destination Moon. And it was noted at the time for being the first scientific uh, approach to space travel. Prior to this, it's Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers. Everybody's zooming around in spaceships that couldn't possibly exist or at least until Gene Roddenberry comes up with them or something and sticks it on NBC for three seasons. They're very fanciful. Uh, There's no talk about scientific elements of propulsion. Um, There's nothing in terms of a realistic approach. 
And at this time, space travel is becoming more prevalent in a post-atomic age. So PAL is given a contract with Paramount, like make more for us. Um, even though these films aren't prestigious, they make money. Make something for us. And he says, I want to do War of the Worlds. Uh, and then this is where an old, uh, an old war horse of stop motion comes into play. You'd think that maybe George Powell would have some competition in a world where Ray Harryhausen exists. Ray Harryhausen was also pitching this film, but was told specifically, I think it was by DeMille, no, Powell's going to do it. And he relented because he's like, well, if anybody can do this, it's George Powell. But in that featurette you talked about, Ray Harryhausen's test footage is shown, and it looks really cool. <laughs> that squid alien that very much looks like Orson Welles, by the way, uh, is a cool effect. And I would actually love to have seen his work um, on the aliens uh, in this. If you could merge what is already in the current film we're talking about with his idea of the aliens, I think it would have been amazing. It would have been eight, 10 times better. Um, nevertheless, though, Pal, uh, Pal gets in and puts his, uh, his idea forward. Now, I love this story that is about to be told. Uh, Ann Robinson related that George Powell went to Don Hartman, who was an executive at Paramount at the time, with the Barry Lyndon script of War of the Worlds. And Powell reportedly uh, 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 thought it was good enough to present to an executive, right? Don Hartman took the script, threw it in the trash. And that's when George Powell grabbed that motherfucker by the lapel and berated and shook him around left and right. And reportedly Frank Freeman, who was the Paramount president at the time, said, I have never seen George look that upset before. <laughs> Let this be a lesson, guys. If you're creating something and an executive tells you it's garbage, please remember they don't know anything. Even the executives that were working at this time who were known for knowing how to make a movie. Sometimes they don't know shit. <laughs> um, now, you've got George Powell producing this piece. You also have Byron Haskin, who we've talked about because Byron Haskin is the one individual who spoke out against Michael Curtiz throwing two-by-fours at people during a flood sequence in Noah's Ark and going, this is all wrong. You're going to kill people. I'm leaving. <laughs> so he walked off of it. But he was known as a special effects director, so this is falling within his line. He's a workhorse, but he has a talent and arguably uh, creates visual acumen that many sci-fi directors like a Spielberg or George Lucas would carry on into their work um, because he's kind of creating a language for it. Um, is it as elegant as the other ones that we've seen later on? No, it's rough, but it's a good rough draft, I would say, especially in this film. Not every sci-fi film involving aliens at this time looks as elegant as this film does. Um, for As you are aware of with MST3K, that's not always gonna be the case. Um, so we're gonna jump into the plot. And as we jump into this plot, we're gonna talk about these visual effects. Cause I think that this would be a little bit more fun than just front loading everything at the top. We open up on a montage of humanity at its fucking worst. <laughs> Uh, war uh, at the time <laughs> violence oh yes at the time yes they they had they didn't know what was coming <laughs> well I mean I, 
it's pretty bad the dark ages and yeah <laughs> the dark ages back then yes but um yeah the more i think about picard season two the more i realize we might be living in it <laughs> um uh but uh yes so we get uh we get the uh Uh, we get this montage of war, and we have the inevitable Paul Freeze from Rocky and Bullwinkle and other J. Ward productions uh, telling us, in the First World War and for the first time in the history of man, nations combined to fight against nations using crude weapons of those days. The Second World War involved every continent on the globe, and men turned to science for new devices of warfare, which read un reached unparalleled peak of their capacity for destruction and now fought with terrible weapons of super science menacing all mankind and every creature on earth comes the war of the worlds and then bam that title hits you over the head like hammer uh it's kind of a really fun way to kick you into the movie um and paul having paul freeze be the the gentleman uh giving that speech is he's got a very prominent voice it's a reason why you use him for a for that kind of authoritative voice in a cartoon um uh, these uh, color titles too are also just very vibrant, nice, and they catch the eye. Um, and then we get uh, the, mo the the prologue. Everybody knows the prologue. Um, even if you don't know War of the Worlds, you're aware of some of these lines. Uh, no one would have believed in the middle of the 20th century that human affairs were being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's uh, across the Gulf of Space. Um, on the planet Mars, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded our Earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely joined their plans against us. Then they go through a tour of the planets. Um, and all of these cosmic drawings, um, I love kind of learning about this. This is really cool. These, these space paintings, a lot of these are done by Chesley Bonstall. He specialized in astronomical art and helped design the Golden Gate Bridge and the Chrysler Building. Uh, and he did map paintings for Citizen Kane and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, and uh, consequently worked with Werner von Braun on a series about the exploration of space that was instrumental in getting von Braun popular with the public, which was one of the compelling ways to push people into the space race. Um, the other one was fear of commies. Um, but those two things have to go together in order to get us to the moon and make James Hart happy. Um, so, but we get a tour of the different planets that are available to them. Uh, and uh, there is an, un an unnatural attraction to the planet Saturn <laughs> um, where they, they looked attracted to them with all of its rings and all of its glow. And I'm like, this is the shallowest fucking planet ever. I've heard Mars, this shallow fucking planet. <laughs> but the other ones aren't good enough. Um, they also mentioned Pluto, which is now a planet again, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Thank God. I was going to be like, well, too bad. It, they can't go to it. It's not a planet anymore. I think they like, refer to it as a dwarf planet. No, a dwarf yeah. planet. Okay, gotcha. Well, that's offensive, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we are kind of thrust into a plot where human connection is about as elusive as being an android in the early years of tng <laughs> um can't right grasp at humanity but we see cylinders have landed or meteors we don't really know what they are people are freaking out uh it causes a uh, a huddling of people uh 
they end up having to reach out to a group of scientists who happen to be fishing in the same area. <laughs> um, perfect, convenient timing. Um, and uh, that's where we meet Dr. Clayton Forrester, played by Gene Barry, um, who um, is very much delivering this stentorian kind of like authoritative voice. Uh, and it makes it difficult for me to love him. <laughs> uh, I get close to the end, but in the beginning, he's kind of just reading his lines a little bit um so much so that it's more fun to pay attention to literally everything else uh and one of those things is as he arrives other people have started gathering around the martian landing site and i love how almost immediately when something has fallen from the sky the first thought by a group of civilians is oh my God, how can we put capitalism into this? How can we find a way to make money off of this? Turn it into a carnival attraction, turn it into a fucking food stand. The pastor goes, let's put up picnic tables. And they go, no, then they have to bring their, they're going to bring their own food. No, bad capitalism, bad. <laughs> um, uh, as the plot progresses, really, though, it becomes a matter of the Martians eventually emerging from these meteorites. Um, or these pods. Um, in between that, though, we meet uh, Anne Robinson's character, who is so enamored by this Clayton Forrester, who she fell in love with um, off of a picture of a magazine. I think it was Time magazine. Uh, and uh, But she's so enamored with him, she can't even remember what he looks like when he's got glasses on. <laughs> hey, it's the Superman effect. <laughs> it's the Superman. It applies. It's the Superman in that era. Yeah. How did this fool people? <laughs> wait, 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 Brad. Remove your glasses for me for a second. Just remove your glasses for me for a second. <gasps> oh my God, you're Green Lantern. <laughs> you're someone completely different. Oh my God, you're 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 part of the Space Corps. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, so yeah, she finally recognizes him and goes, "Like, well, I'm sorry, I didn't notice he was out of your glasses." And then he just goes, "Like, yeah, you could say I'm some kind of a Superman." Um, and uh, he's gonna stay in town to overlook this astronomical phenomenon and the pastor of the town who also happens to be the niece of or the uncle of ann robinson's character goes well you're welcome to stay with us and hey why don't you join us for a square dance and we cut right into a square dance in the middle of this sci-fi movie and the only reason i don't find it ridiculous is it's kind of cool to watch this film incorporate a regular activity instead of just being strictly focused on the sci-fi. I think like one of the most valuable parts of a Spielberg movie is that, yeah, the sci-fi stuff's important, but it's also about human interaction and connection. And this technically counts. Like it's, it's an effective moment. Yeah. It's kind of like Tom Cruise playing ball with his son in war of the worlds before the tripods come. Yeah. Um, but it definitely feels like they, they, made it so they could develop the characters a little bit more than they probably would have been. It's better at fleshing them out than arguably the middle section where they start going into their traumatic past that we just learned about. Um, but yeah, and, it, and it's also, it's interesting to just kind of watch a whole town in very much a normal celebration. And then what happens when they kick the lights down after that first pulsar attack and everything is just suddenly gone to shit. Um, but the pods start emerging um, are, are, are still glowing. And there's three people left behind. Um, Mo, Curly, and Larry, I've been calling them this whole week. Um, and uh, they are 
getting closer to it because it starts emanating more noise and starts unscrewing. And I wanted to know how you felt about this. I want to see if I'm alone in this or not. Unlike when you see films from this era, sometimes in the sci-fi realm where they want to get to that alien super quick um, or they want to show the giant monster, the best ones tend to be the ones that hold back the most. And in this particular case, them cutting back to the unscrewing, to them talking, to the unscrewing, and it's just delayed, it really works to to heighten the tension. Uh, it, it's really good at, I know what the effects are going to be, but in that moment, I am like, not so much terrified, but I am like, I'm on edge. I'm like, what's going to come out? <laughs> like, yeah. Is it going to be something different? Um, I think it's like a product of that time. Is like you don't want to show, like, yeah, the alien's cool, but also if you show it too much, it's going to be more silly because mm-hmm. yes. it is a primitive uh, monster-making model thing, <laughs> I guess. So, yeah, the longer you can hold off showing it and reduce it, you know, it's like showing the slasher on screen. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the more you can hold off showing you know, keep them in the dark, not, not put a whole, like don't put them in the sunlight. It's like mm-hmm. putting Batman in the sunlight. <laughs> it's not as scary. Yeah. Well, um, they have put Batman in the well, sunlight. Well, yeah, Dark Knight Rises for sure, but. Oh, no, I was also talking about Batman 1966. Yeah. Like, they put him bright in the sunshine. Yeah. But yeah, but if you want your, if you want your thing to be like ominous and scary, yeah. Should. It's similar to Godzilla too. We, yeah. We, we, or we Jaws. About, yeah. Yeah. We, and uh, uh, even, uh, even the thing from another world, which loves showing. Uh, the the James Arness monster, they pull back. Like it takes a while before we see that thing in full, and when we can cover it in fire, we jump on it immediately. Uh, and like and them also holds back on showing its ants too much. Like it is more of a character based story. It's really the the B the B level budget films that tend to overuse the monster because it's kind of all they have. Um, but. Uh, that's when we start getting this eye of the Martian machine scoping out. Uh, and as they are pissing their pants, they are trying to figure out, well, what are we going to say to it? And <laughs> the guy gives the line, welcome to California. <laughs> it's a good line. It still works. <laughs> uh, and then as they are trying to wave a white flag, because they are so sure that a white flag will always work. Like yeah, everybody knows the universal a, sign for friendly. Yeah, everybody knows what a white flag means, especially people we've never met before from another planet. Yeah, everybody. The arrogance of humans. Yes, yeah. the, yes. What, uh, what applies to us applies to everyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need lore coming in here, going like, oh, "You stupid humans." Um, it's 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 sort of like it's hackneyed a little bit, and it's over acted a little bit, but it works, especially given the fact that our attention is so focused on this very, very unsettling eye. Uh, And it pulls out a blast at us. Um, Now, this is technically the heat ray. Um, And the heat ray from this, first of all, the Martian machines, we're seeing one portion of it, which is the telescope, essentially. Uh, It is connected to wiring for that light. And there are photographs that they show in the Criterion, and I'm sure you could look them up online. It is intricate wiring. It is so fucking intricate. Uh, I was kind of shocked, which also tells me how heavy these things were going to be with the final uh, Martian machine that we get. Um, But 
this heat ray, we have to give credit to an old friend of the show that we haven't talked about in a while, and we haven't even t- touched upon him in full, but does the name Kenneth Strickfadden mean anything to you, Mr. Brad? Uh, I don't think I've heard it before. Hit. No, you've never. You, if you've not heard the name, you definitely have seen his equipment because if it were not for his equipment, a Frankenstein laboratory would not look the way it does with all of those whirring gears and electrical gadgets because that's all stuff that he kind of basically designed and curated and young Frankenstein was the last one to use his equipment, I believe. Um, but he was also uh, interested in other kinds of effects as well for other films and sound effects as well. Um, Strick Fadden, uh, the warm-up sound effect. Strick Fadden used a device, um, one of his devices, and turned it on, and he made a repeating loop of the sound to eliminate the buildup, to, uh, to, to emanate from the buildup. So basically he's taking a recording, relooping it, and reverbing it. This has a lot to do additionally with how early tape worked because you could take that sound effect from the tape, you record it with the tape, you play it back and record it on top of itself with old reel-to-reel tape and you're creating the loop that way and you create natural reverb. So a lot of these things are about, a lot of these effects are coming from the manipulation of technology, which is something that makes a lot of these sci-fi sounds from the era sound so unique. Um, In fact, there's only one sound effect that they couldn't fully pin down what they did. Um, And it has to do with a certain uh, beam that comes out, but we'll touch upon that um, in a second. But this heat ray, this full sound effect of it going off, is the single stroke of an electric guitar, uh, uh, the plucking on lunge string in different pitches combined through the loop to create that sound effect. So it's electric guitar at its earliest efforts. Before it was rocking and a rolling, it was murdering and a slaying, <laughs> I, I guess, to put it in brief terms. Um, but the Martians attack, and that causes all lights and technology to shut down except for cars (laughs) (laughs) everything is shut down except for the cars uh and i think it's because gods are what we call um plot conveniences (laughs) well cars back then didn't have electronics like they had radio but they didn't have well i guess you had lights you have lights um car yeah i guess they had batteries but yeah you've got to have they're not as yeah they're not as tech heavy as they are now uh, maybe they're not as reliant, and the gas-powered thing is its own separate yeah. engine. They didn't have sensors and things. No, yeah. but um, much like um, the Matrix, they the, an EMP wave blasts all the energy out, and the way they find that out is, wait a minute, look at my watch. Puts a pin next to it, going like, see, Ooh, it's, it's magnetized. <laughs> and that's when I'm like, say, a magnet watch, huh? I could be Magneto. Um, be careful of it sapping all the uh, iron out of your blood. <laughs> <laughs> You should have heat rayed me when you had the chance. <laughs> if Magneto just showed up in this movie and fought the Martians, I'd, I'm not opposed to that. <laughs> yeah, you just slam two of those things together and yeah, movie's I, over. Yeah, and it has to be Ian McKellen as he is right now, not from 20 years ago in the first X-Men movie, now. <laughs> like, get him in a suit. 
um, because I'm a fanboy and I deserve everything that I want. Um, uh, no, so they go back to the site and that's when the machines emerge. Uh, now, I remember as a kid not fully understanding this from dialogue because I was more focused on just watching all the pretty colors and whatnot. But War of the Worlds is known for these tripods um, in their art, in their most uh, prevalent artwork. Uh, it's something that Spielberg took to heart when making his film. That would have been too expensive, apparently. <laughs> uh, not the least of which maybe stop motion probably could have solved this issue, but then you'd have to get Ray, Harry, Ray Harryhausen in there. And as we've already established, he's not welcome to this party. Um, so the idea that Forrester explains is that it's basically some kind of an electromagnetic wave that's pushing against the ground. It's acting like legs. Now, this was supposed to be a more constant effect. You do see it when they start to get up, basically. But this was another strict fat in effect. And this had to do with, um, basically, the repelling rays were utilizing some of those electronic gizmos that you see in a, in a Frankenstein lab where it's the, the electric ray goes up and you think it's doing something cool when literally it's just doing nothing. You film that against a black screen and it creates the impression of this electrical ray effect. And then that's superimposed onto the film with using the same black velvet tech that was initiated by uh, The Invisible Man, another H.G. Wells adaptation. So this is all about optical printing. The same optical printing that achieves that effect that you pointed out earlier, which is the uh, glass shields. Um, so there's a lot of wonderful physical in-camera effects going on in here. Apparently, the effect that Strick Fadden had done, in order to achieve it, they're taking an electric, uh, an electric uh, beam that is pulsating. And what they were doing was basically using more or less an air dryer or a compressed fan to push it out. And the studio said, that's not safe. <laughs> You could set something on fire. So they eliminate it except for one shot that still remains in the film. But they recreated it, um, re recreated part of that special effect um, in the movie archaeology featurette that Criterion put out where you uh, get to see them utilize it for a whole different effect, which is the skeleton beams, uh, which is kind of cool to watch them go through the process with this this guy who apparently lives out in the middle of California and just does this stuff going like, does this technology still work? And I'm like, I want to meet you. <laughs> like, I want to meet you and be like, yeah, just give me a tutorial about everything you know. Um, so the aliens, uh, the Martians emerge and our attack has begun. Uh, and the military is called in. So far, they are not really engaging in anything malicious yet but they have clearly killed two three people and i know that because their ashes are on the ground conveniently in the same form of their silhouette uh which i wanted to ask you do you find that unnerving or hilarious uh neither i get in between like yeah they, they should just be like piles they shouldn't be silhouettes but uh at the same time, I, I get that it's more effective to explain like what it is. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to throw this idea out to you. You've heard, I mean, obviously you, you're aware of the A-bomb and what it did. Uh, what? 
<laughs> oh, oh, I have something to tell you. Settle what happened? This. Well, you remember World War II. No, I wasn't there. You weren't. Okay, well, for, for long story short, the Nazis were being horrible and the Japanese were on their side as well. Really? Uh, yes, and we, um, we got into a war with them. Um, no way. It was a sequel to the First World War. Um, wow. But like The Dark Knight compared to Batman Begins, way better and way cooler. That blows my mind that a sequel is better than the original. Yes, exactly. Now, uh, but in order to end the movie, they had to end it like The Dark Knight Rises, where they they uh, use a big bomb. Um, but uh, Sometimes you can't just get rid of a bomb. But, yeah, yeah. yeah, but uh, unlike taking the bomb out into the water so that Batman can explode, they actually dropped the bombs on two cities uh, and it was devastating and it was That's a new type up. of bomb. Yes, it's very fucking messed up. Um, and... Uh, it uh, is has it really impacted the way this really happened. Yes, yes, wow. exactly. Okay. Yes, and and tension around this weapon lasted up until 1989. Um, <sighs> arguably, it's still. around. I was alive for seven years. I never heard of it. Yeah, no, I know. Well, Reagan kind of kept you in a little bubble. And, oh, you know, okay. while he while he quote unquote stopped it from happening anymore, um, but the when in all seriousness with the a bomb. Uh, and photos you've seen of its aftermath. There's ideas of the shadows of people's silhouettes basically being flared on there. That's the impression I got of it. Yeah, it's a pile of ash that looks like a cartoon silhouette, but it also gave me the idea of the atomic age. And in a sense, it's unsettling, um, especially because the middle one looks like it was dancing. Uh, but uh, but something that I found interesting about this film is that's one of three instances where the idea of living in an atomic world is super prevalent. The other one comes when they try to nuke the thing and it doesn't work. Uh, but you don't get a lot of the whole atomic scare thing in this movie as compared to other sci-fi films at this time. And it's kind of refreshing to not relies solely on the whole Oppenheimer effect basically catapulting its story. Um, so the military gathers. Uh, so far in terms of story, Dr. Forrester um, and uh, uh, Sylvia, are played by Ann Robinson, are just kind of milling around with these generals. Another general comes in and goes, hi, I'm a general. And he goes, hi, I'm another general. Glad to meet you. And they are about to engage and we get a lot of scope in this movie. Uh, one thing that I found really fun, I always find it funny when you try to engage the military in filmmaking um, because the military wants to look good. Um, so they tend to lend their cooperation from time to time. Marvel did this with Iron Man uh, for the first Iron Man in order to lend authenticity to the Tony Stark world as it were. Um, but uh, one thing that I love about this is Ben Burt and Craig Barron looked through Paramount Records for a couple of different fun stories. Uh, and one of them is them trying to get permission from the Department of Defense to utilize the military in this film. So they sent them the script. Now, in this film, Brad, does the military win against the Martians within the first two-thirds of the movie? They do not. They do not. Yeah. I mean, they really don't ever. No. Well, no, actually, no, <laughs> technically, yeah. No, yeah. no, there's a different kind of a military, the military of the microbes. The complete um, futility of the human race. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Is um is resistance futile, by the way? Uh, I've heard it's 
It is. Okay, just checking. Just want to make sure we're on the same page there. I'll look it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Go look it up. Um, you know what? You can find that information in a cube somewhere. Um, like Maybe it's a Rubik's Cube. Um, but the Department of Defense did respond to the script. And the rest of the letter is really cool, like what they show of the letter document in the featurette. But the one that uh, Ben Burt quotes directly is quite funny, which is, it is worth mentioning that the picture does not uh, does nothing which could have said to have any public informational value to the Department of Defense or M- Army, but on the contrary, it shows the military to be inept and incapable of stemming the imaginary attack from Mars. Under the circumstances, it would be it would not be possible to use real troops or to fill uh, uh, real uh, real ships or to film real troops in maneuvers for use in connection with the production of the picture. Uh, additionally, the letter says it might be possible to authorize the use of stock footage. They did end up using stock footage of military equipment for one of the planes. Um, but let's stop there for a second and address the military at this time, because I think they've gotten better about this now and understanding, um, the difference between real and make-believe, uh, the department of defense at this time seemed to have absolutely no imagination (laughs) because it's not real. <laughs> well, as a taxpayer, I don't know if I want my tax money going to them playing around on a movie set. Well. It's, it's if, yeah, granted, they may not have any missions going on at the time, but there's always military readiness, so I don't blame them for being like, maybe we shouldn't waste taxpayer dollars on this. I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. I think it's the way they're rejecting it that seems kind of silly to me, going like, okay, but... They're bravely standing against the Martians, even in certain defeat. Doesn't that kind of look good on them? <laughs> like, kind of? They're not really inept. If you watch the movie, they're not inept. They're firing at them. They just don't know anything about how to defeat them yet. They're using the tactics they're aware of. Um, how many times have you seen a movie where the military shoots at something, it doesn't work, they keep trying, but they're just trying yeah. until they figure out what the solution is? Yeah, they shoot, yeah, they shoot a bullet at like this metal wall, and they're like, hmm. Still not working, but we're going to keep shooting anyway. <laughs> and by the way, the more they kept shooting at it, the more we're, we're yeah. back and hit them in the head. We'll so. keep bouncing off of it, but we're going to keep shooting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the but I think that the whole like the refusing to use it, but uh, authorizing stock footage. Thankfully, this film uses stock footage, let's say, better than Ed Wood did in like something like Plan 9 from Outer Space or Bride of the Monster. But uh, they did use uh, stock footage of for the flying wing near the end that's going to drop the A-bomb, it is of the YB-49, which was made out in Northrop. And that plane ended up not being an actually successful model, but it became the inspiration for the B-2 stealth bombers. So it's kind of amazing that that stock footage did end up working. Like, you can tell when stock footage is inserted in these older films. The the, The film quality itself literally changes, and you're not... You can't restore that negative because you need to track down where that stock footage came from, and nine times out of ten, that's not going to be available. Yeah. Um, I thought there was a shot in this of a tank that I felt like was a quick insert from... Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. There are inserts of those, but they were not undaunted, or they were not daunted by the, by the rejection letter, because they went ahead and just contacted the National Guard in Arizona anyway, and the National Guard in Arizona said, sure, we're Arizona, why the fuck not? And they... <laughs> basically broke 
with the DOD's wishes and just did it anyway. So there are legitimate troops out there. And among the first shots that Ann Robinson discussed that they're filming is stuff out on that field, uh, saying that it was just cold and wet in the middle of Arizona, like at that time. And uh, those tanks apparently, as she said, were not going to stop for anybody. They don't stop for actors. It's very harrowing to understand what it took to get realism. And in a way, as much as I like practical stuff, yeah, I want people to be safe. So if you've got to use environmental mapping or whatever the hell you've got to use with visual CGI effects, please do. Don't want people to die for the sake of artistry. Yeah. Yeah. No no reason to kill anybody. No lives are worth, yeah. Yes. Any fictional mm-hmm. filmmaking yes. thing. Ex- yeah. Exactly. Uh, absolutely agreed. So uh, they start their attack and military tra- military tries to shoot at it, right? No go. Doesn't work. Those glass dome effects... Uh, as you were talking about, they're shot separately on a plate. They're optically printed. Uh, and they had several different uh, spark and flare effects going on around it as they were filming. And then they're imposing that on. And they kind of have to, they, it looks like they have to kind of limit them because you don't want to set these miniature sets on fire, which talk, let's talk a little bit about these miniatures because we're actually technically in a miniature environment at this time uh these miniatures were not just regular miniatures they're basically huge expanded sets like huge uh not huger they're not larger than you and i but they're fairly close to our size to create that scope and scale they said like 10 10 to 12 feet was the biggest structure they had yes and that would have been in la for the city sequences and those in particular Everything in these miniatures is so fucking detailed. They're only shooting actors on basically one stage, which I believe was stage 18. Uh, and the disparate shots on location in Arizona. Everything else is in studio, and they're basically interchanging that same stage constantly. Those miniatures, to achieve this scope and effect, do a better job than miniatures uh, can do. Like, I actually love miniature work because it, even if it's not the greatest, it still feels real. It still feels tangible. Uh, and, it, it, and it does give you a sense of scope if done properly. Uh, a movie that was made like close to 20 years or like 15 years before it, Only Angels Have Wings, it's using model planes uh, and miniature planes. But they look so fucking cool that you forget that they are very much the size of my water bottle. Uh, the detail in these forests is remarkable. The way that they are layering upon layering upon layering these shots is just awe-inspiring. And then combining it with all of the troop action and these troops basically getting blasted away. Um, <clears throat> one of these instances of the troops like running away is somebody getting set on fire. And we've talked about somebody getting set on fire for a stunt with the thing from another world. Ben Burt supposes, based off of historical analysis, that this is assumed to be the first time that a stunt person is set on fire for a film, like physically set on fire. And uh, naturally, with any firsts, 
uh, consequences to the action of we don't know what we're doing. Somebody tells me they didn't have that uh, fire gel back then. No, no. Although I'm trying to remember if Thing from Another World had... They didn't. They clearly didn't have the gel that can safely last for a minute. But even when you've got flame on, you're 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 only there for like thirty seconds before you've got to get doused out. This one though, they must have had something that protected enough. But it uh, <laughs> it uh, Harvey Perry was damaged enough to file a complaint with Paramount. <laughs> Uh, he reportedly did get burned pretty bad. Uh, and, um, you know, when you have an accident at work, you filed to, you file a workman's comp claim, you get paid for the injury. Um, Paramount paid him $55 for the injury, <laughs> which even back then is not really fair compensation for getting burned <laughs> when you're set on fire. Sorry about your permanent injury. <laughs> yeah, it was like, what, $200 in our money? <laughs> you did agree to it. It was fire. I don't know how you'd understand. Also, you're a stunt person, <laughs> so you're not a human being. <laughs> you don't matter. <laughs> um, uh, that's not the only accident report uh, that comes off of this uh, set. Did you know that Gene Barry, in doing promotional stunts for this film, did a shot, a publicity shot of him riding a bicycle and being carefree and going like, oh, my hands are off the wheel, huh? Fucking injured his ass. Fell on his coccyx. And did have to report an accident to on the Paramount lot. And it said, injured posterior. And I'm like, just say ass bruise. Just say ass bruise, please. <laughs> um, the, uh, the fact that this movie has two accidents attached to it that are, one is very harrowing. And you don't want people to be burned on set when you're trying to set them on fire. And the other one is as stupid as falling on your ass from a bicycle. Uh, it shows you the glory of Golden Age Hollywood and all of its strange wackiness. Um, but so the military get virtually blasted away. And one th one shot that when I when I saw it again, I was like Mars attacks is a skeleton beam hits him and he dissolves basically into a skeleton more or less that effect has a sound effect that they cannot identify it is elusive ben burt says that a couple of the options that have been presupposed have been it's believed to maybe be a spring a shock absorber uh the spring of an old garage door or a slinky being, you hit a slinky on the side and it reverbs. Uh, but the effect did not appear first in this film. It first appeared in the movie My Favorite Spy with Bob Hope and Hedy Lamarr uh, as the sound effect of a barrel opening up. And this sound effect would never go away because in order for the USS Enterprise to attack uh, a... Uh, a villain uh, from afar, 
they sometimes use their phasers, but occasionally they use, need to use photon torpedoes. And if the photon torpedoes do not have that sound effect that we are discussing at this very moment, well, then those torpedoes do not work. <laughs> um, <laughs> you need the sound, you need the boing in order for the missile to actually hit. So yes, they're from Star Trek, uh, the original series. So very cool to kind of see that, li that Paramount library being reused throughout the years. Wish they'd do that now. <laughs> like, just put random fifty special sound effects into modern movies that are. Might have a fidelity issue. <laughs> I don't care. Do a do a Transformers movie, but the sound design is entirely based on nineteen fifty sound effects. Because <laughs> I want to see how jarring it is. Um, but so everybody retreats, and basically people are split up. Oh wait, I take that back. We do have to talk about the first prevalent death in this film. The pastor, the pastor, as we talked about earlier, tells his niece, yeah, they, these Martians are so evolved that they must be closer to God. So clearly they'll understand me and my religious ways. Um, so I'm going to go out there and risk my life. But by the way, that scientist, put a ring on it, put a ring on it, man. Uh, but then he walks out there. I actually like that scene of him walking out. And doing the whole, in though I walk through the valley of the shadow I know, of death. I immediately thought of dangerous violence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very like, uh, the music, the uh, Lee Stevenson's score is very fantastic in this. You know what's going to happen. Our pop culture knowledge has taught us, we know he's going to die. But it's very elegantly shot, very well executed. Uh, it's... Of all the characters in the film, he's kind of the most interesting because he's got this idea of, well, the Martians come from above, so they must be close to God. <laughs> um, and as silly as that is. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I wasn't thinking that. I was just like, oh, that, guy, that dude's naive. No, he is, but I think it's like the idea of, okay, like if the Martians land today, how are we going to perceive what, 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 uh, basis of knowledge that we have inherent in our, us as humans are we going to use to attach meaning to the Martians landing? Yeah. Uh, have you seen people? I think they'll <laughs> probably shoot it out of the sky before he even gets to the ground. Well, that's true. One one guy, with the me when the meteor hit, he literally went at it with a shovel going like, it might be valuable. <laughs> yeah. No, it's this day and age, they're not going to... Look how they treat foreigners <laughs> who are already here. Actually, that's very, very true. Like they're not going to try any ambassadorial hey, tactics right. to that, anyone coming from outer space. That's right. Our script literally addressed that very yeah. issue. Um, I'm sure more evolved, but no, they're just going to be like, they're not even going to wait. They're just going to be like, get rid of it. But spirituality does tend to needlessly attach itself to things it has no right to. Um, if you try to bring in dinosaurs into the issue, they go like, well, the humans live with the dinosaurs and everything was happy because God created the dinosaurs at the same time they might go into this whole realm of just like, well, of course the aliens are a creation of God and they're also Christian and they give us money. Um, but I think it's just the idea of him. He poses it as higher, uh, higher evolved beings. So therefore maybe they're real, if they're religious, their spiritual acumen would be tenfold compared to his. He wants to learn. Am I right or am I wrong? And if I'm right, what do they know? But obviously the Martians are not interested in Christianity. They're interested in, I want your home, please, because <laughs> ours is dying. <laughs> is that what they want? I thought they felt like we were a threat, so they were pre preemptively taking they're, us down. Well, they're, they're but from what the uh, they're they're trying to inhabit another planet. They're trying to gain our planet for they, our resources. For our resources, yes. 
they scrutinize and study, they go, well, like this one's too Are cold. they going to study our bacteria first? Hmm. We'll, we'll get to that because <laughs> we addressed that. In- they studied the whole planet but didn't catch on to the bacteria in the air. Let's, just jump, let's just jump into this right now. Because they were already here. See, my motivation makes more sense because they're like, oh, they're they're entering the atomic age. We we got to stop this. If if they the the opening monologue, you heard it. Mm-hmm. They scrutinized and studied us for many a year. It seems like these Martians are f- t- missed it by that much, dude. <laughs> it seems like Martians just don't know about. You have to uh, you have to get a hundred percent of the data in order to get authorization. Uh, you, why did you not look into the bacteria of it? Were you just looking to this is too hot, this is too cold, this planet's just right? Because <laughs> that's basically their logic for even coming down to begin with. Uh, the vegetation works, weather seems to be acclimatable. They can do this, but but not breathable air. No, just totally went over their heads. No. I always appreciated like the David and Goliath story of like, yeah, here's these Goliath Martians, and then the thing that takes them down is something they didn't plan for, and it's right. so microscopic that even we don't plan for it. But at the same time, I'm just like, yeah, it seems like this, this superior, advanced culture didn't take the time. To, like, I'm sure they ran a ton of tests, but somehow that one slipped by. That's a pretty big one. Well, like, it was it was Jerry the Martian's fault. Jerry was the one who did, was, he was supposed to do microbiological yeah. research, and he fucking messed around. Like we went we went to the moon, and we were, we didn't just like ahead of time. Like, we, oh, surprise! There's no air up here. We we, <laughs> we knew we knew ahead of time before the rockets went off that like but, oh yeah, space doesn't have an atmosphere. That's one small step for <laughs> yeah. So uh yeah. But here's the question. So, okay. So, this, the novel ends like that. It has to do with bacteria, like the smallest creatures take down the mightiest of the giants, and there might be giants. Hey, that might make a band one day. The, the way it's handled, I think, depends on perspective. So, in the radio broadcast, I, I kind of buy it more because we're from a first-person perspective, essentially. We are really much dealing with this from, if it's not news's perspective or the military's perspective, it's from the Professor Pearson's perspective. We don't really know a lot. We're all kind of speculating or guessing. In Spielberg's version, we are so focused on Tom Cruise running (laughs) and Tim Robinson scaring the shit out of us that we're not really paying attention to what can the Martians do and not do, except we know that they can capture us in a pod put us in a little nest, and scare the hell out of Zach at the age of uh, 14. So, okay, they can do all that. But when the ending comes at the end of Spielberg's film, we're more invested in the human story anyway. So the way the aliens are destroyed is of little consequence. All we need to know is that the aliens are dead. I'd argue that the film we're talking about today, if there's any misstep I have in its overall story, it's the fact that these guys are so close to understanding the way to defeat the aliens. They look into its blood under a microscope. But they kind of let the thread die in order to end it on a human note that they haven't really earned in the script up to this point. Because the whole idea of the ending is more predicated on Forrester finding Sylvia at the church 
than it is about what he looked in his microscope at three days ago. <laughs> yeah, we got to reunite the leading man with the leading lady and yeah, wrap this movie up. Exactly. And it sucks because where the plot goes and when the atomic test fails, it would be cool for maybe a scientist to go like, all right, we've tried it with the big old gun and now we're going to try it with a tiny little knife. Whatever. I don't know how you word it. I'm not a, I'm not a great writer, so I'll hand it to somebody else. You figure this out. Uh, it does feel, unfortunately, like, oh, we've got this little thing that pops up here, goes away for a minute, and then we just start seeing him like sink into the into the earth. And I don't know if that I I've read the War of the Worlds novel. My focus is not strictly on the aliens. It's more about the humans that are being enveloped by these aliens. And their death feels more poetic um, about the David and Goliath aesthetic. This film kind of feels obligated to put it in there because it's the best way to end this movie that doesn't involve a nuclear blast and sort of being faithful to the uh, prestigious name of H.G. Wells. And keep in mind, when you buy these novels at this time, this wasn't about like, we're going to make a lot of money. More often than not, you're buying something from an illustrious Victorian author. It's for prestige. It's like the exact opposite of what Marvel is. You buy Marvel to make money now. It'd be like saying to me, hey, the Paramount wants to make a Spider-Man movie because Spider-Man will win us 20 Oscars. That's what their, that's what their mentality was at that time. Um, but when we, before we get to that microbial thing, we need to talk about not just the... Uh, the aftermath of that first attack, but the farmhouse sequence. Uh, and the farmhouse sequence has amazing stuff in it. Uh, as the plot progresses along, we learn that Dr. Clayton Forrester is an only child. Sylvia really grew up around her uncle. Uh, and once she was a kid, she ran away into a church because it was the only place she felt safe. And I wanted the person who loved me most to come and find me. And it's actually a very well-written human moment, but... It just kind of feels unearned. Uh, as they're trying to escape and trying to make their way back to Pacific Tech, the college that Forrester teaches at, uh, the Martians' attack has basically spread out throughout the world. Uh, they've attacked South America. They've attacked, uh, they're in Nepal. Um, and they really, really love invading Britain. <laughs> like, there's a lot of, like, oh, the like Cedric Hardwick is the narrator. He's a British actor. He he very much you could hear in his voice later on where he's like the Martians uh, enjoyed the attack on the Isles especially Britain. <laughs> it's like is this a Anglophile movie or is it anti-Anglophile? <laughs> they knew they were the original colonizers, so <laughs> the you know the Martians take them out first. Yes, very true. That or also the Martians just really really wanted to meet Benedict Cumberbatch. I think that that was the motivation because everybody wants to meet Benedict Cumberbatch, don't you? <laughs> um, uh, he but wasn't even born yet. <laughs> well, they were gonna wait. <laughs> <laughs> they went to a fucking fan expo before they existed. <laughs> they really wanted to meet, because they really love his performance as Khan in Star Trek Into Darkness. That's the thing they know him for best. Yeah, Farmhouse uh, Secrets reminded me of the uh, Spielberg version, which I think is the best sequence in the movie, where yeah. it's got the very Walking Dead uh, style thing of like, the exterior threat isn't the real threat. It's the, the, the interior 
just the common people are actually more dangerous. Yeah, and what it does to humanity. The sad part is we don't get the crazy farmer in yeah. this movie. I was like, ooh, what's their version of this? Oh, he's not here. But their version isn't without merit. It does contain very suspenseful moments. They are kind of trapped in a bottle, more or less. Yeah. I was expecting the whole movie to be just constant like battle scenes uh, across like a wide spath, uh, swath of area, but... Uh, yeah, when they get to the farmhouse, I'm like, oh, cool, finally something It's a little different mm-hmm. while also having like a spooky atmosphere to it. Yeah, and the we get another version of the telescope, which is the three-eyed telescope, and it resembles the Martian's eye. The RGB. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. Projector. Oh, we'll adjust your television color, but also destroy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love that. Uh, Just got to realign these. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny, like, as television is emerging at this point, color television doesn't not exist. It's just not. It's but still a bit of a sci-fi fantasy of like. It is yes, like, like, and that whole but the whole idea of RGB, like, people were aware of those spectrums of color to create, um, like a Technicolor or something like that. Yeah, light. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the spectrums of light in there, and this whole design of the Martian machines, of the eye and everything. Um, I wanted to make sure I credit him because he's responsible for kind of building some nightmares. Al Nazaki was our art director for this. He designs the Martian machines and he designs these eyes. Uh, and he was known to storyboard each scene of the movie and whatnot. A very meticulous guy. Watch some interviews with him from that special feature. It's just very interesting listening to him talk about working at that time. And for a, a Japanese art director to be working in such a high position at this point is not... It's not nothing. Um, now, but as far as the design of the Martians, though, we have to think of a gentleman named Charlie Gamora for this, um, who, uh, like any responsible parent, uh, roped his daughter into helping out on a big motion picture for potentially 10 to 12 hours per day. Uh, this uh, this would not happen today at all. Um, but family business, you know, you gotta, you want, you want to eat, you got to earn the food. Um, so Charlie Gamora and his daughter, Diana Gamora, uh, I'm just thinking Gamora. (laughs) Um, and then of course her sister Nebula, uh, but Diana Gamora recalls, basically we had to start from scratch in creating these. And that meant we had to build the armature. We had to wire the head in, put chicken wire around the armature. We put plaster bandages over that, leaving the back open because Charlie knew that he had to work the monster now. That's the other thing. Its creator also had to puppeteer it, um, which not not always ideal. Like you kind of want somebody who can solely focus on that while maybe he focuses on making sure it stays intact. Um, and so the monster's hands were made for a six-foot monster. So we had we had to work these huge arms into this small body. Uh, we pulled old latex off the old monster that we had designed, layer it on first, then start putting new layers on over it. And this is the beginning to start looking opaque and real. So they're just slapping stuff on it. And I I think there's a tendency when we think of this era of sci-fi that the monster looks like a rubber monster. More often than not, these things are actually built layer upon layer. They're not just some guy in a suit. Uh, even the Godzilla suit has stuff going on inside of it that's not just guy, you know, putting on a Halloween costume. I think that the amount of energy they devoted to this design is more admirable than the design itself. I don't love the Martian look. I like it, though, because the eye is unique and it's interesting. And I think that's Alan Nazaki's 
already eye effect taking shape. Uh, but it does kind of look like E.T. a little bit. Uh, and in fact, I would be shocked if Spielberg didn't watch this movie as a kid and said, say, what if an alien hand reaches somebody on the shoulder and taps them, but instead it's an alien that just loves Reese's Pieces? Because <laughs> that felt like a fucking E.T. moment if it were terrifying instead of cute. Um, no, it's terrifying to some people. The, <laughs> on a, on now, now who would that be? Who 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 would ever be afraid of E.T. the extraterrestrial? Can't imagine. It's so adorable. You, who doesn't think that beer drinking aliens are cool? Um, you know, you you probably have to be a guy who's obsessed with dragons, Mountain Dew, um, uh, and potentially uh, the Fast and Furious franchise for some strange reason. Uh, I don't know who that would be though. He sounds like a guy I'd love to have on the show. And maybe should come on the show. You have a d- d- completely different audience, so this joke is just not going to land. I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure anybody... Um, like, who are they talking up? Yeah. Well, Zach's on another podcast? Well, you know, maybe if you just look into your heart. <laughs> I'm hoping to create a connected universe so that I can make billions of dollars like Kevin Feige. Um, so far, I've not been successful. <laughs> um, but uh, Bob Burns uh, is another expert in this... Uh, uh, in arena. For those who don't know, he's a historian and uh, was a professional movie gorilla for years, which I found really cool. I wish we could get paid to do that now. <laughs> like, it's just like, yeah, they're making another Planet of the Apes movie. Brad, you and I have a job to do. Let's just go be professional gorillas for a while. Um, but they, um, in order to get inside of it, he said he would kneel inside of it and put his hands into the arms, and they came out to about the elbows or so. And then he had to pull rods so that he could pull and animate the fingers. That is another layer that I don't want to have to deal with because I don't know like how I don't know how coordinated you are with like knowing like have you ever worked pup, puppetry before? Mm-hmm. Like tried to operate a puppet? Yeah. I don't like trying to do it like making a Muppet move with its hands because I'd be like, I can't coordinate. That requires really specific coordination. And it honestly stresses me out just thinking about what they had to do for it. Um but that whole shot of the shoulder thing uh, did nearly uh, injure injure the guy uh, that was operating it. Uh, Diana, uh, in terms of putting the eye in, she remarked that realizing that he has to put the eye in, that now the now wires can't go along the side of the thing. And so they have to come over the head for freedom of movement, and that's, as you said, what they come up with. Uh, basically turning the wires into veins so mm-hmm. they kind of s- strand them out in very oblong shapes. Yep, and using air pump tech that honestly I'm sure was utilized. Maybe we'll find this out later eventually, but kind of reminds me of the early tech of, of the veins throbbing in the uh, heads of the uh, keepers of uh, Captain Pike in uh, mm. the Menagerie. Uh it's just really cool to look at. Like, I don't, I never thought those effects ever looked fake. Like, they felt real to me. If I'm seeing something pulsate that comes off of an otherwise rubberish figure, I be, I'm always sold on it. I'm like, ugh, that thing's moving. <laughs> like, um, and uh, that scene where it grabs her on the shoulder and it runs away, it lets out a scream. And 
Ben Burt dissected the scream of this. It's dry ice scraping over metal and then the reverse of a woman screaming layered on top of each other. Uh, and the way it runs away, uh, it, to me, just looks like Dr. Zoidberg, <laughs> which is kind of fun because <laughs> then it just disappears. And it's like, um, but so they do manage to get away from this house, but the whole house and the way the scenes unfold from a dramatic standpoint, there's a lot of tension. There is holding, uh, hiding, a lot of hiding from it. And we, similar to the first uh, experience we had with the uh, guys descending upon the comet, they are really using editing to their advantage and they are really pacing it out. This movie is not slow, but it grips you in the moments that it becomes physically slow because you're invested in these characters not getting caught by these Martians. Um, I think that in spite of the fact it doesn't have the farmer, it's still an effective little bottle bottle sequence, more or less. Um, and then as they escape, make it back to civilization, that's when we get a whole montage of the whole world is going through this. And in fact, the last photograph that Paris was able to get out was of the Martians attacking the Eiffel Tower, into which somebody went sacre bleu. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> it's decided by all military officials who are still holed up in Washington, which remains virtually untouched, I guess, for some reason. Um, I guess the Martians are just like us. We Not don't want to go anywhere. Want to go there. Yeah, we, nobody wants to go near Washington, D.C., no matter what decade. Uh, but they decide, well, the only option is atomic bombs because that's the only solution we ever have. Uh, but meanwhile, we get that whole scene of them studying the whole uh, studying the studying the blood, and again, you you think you maybe take more than five minutes to look at that, but instead, we need to have a sequence where we can see what the Martians see through their eyes, and talk about a talk about a film that finds any excuse to do something fun with special effects, and make that the point of the movie because. This movie is more focused on its special effects, and it makes sense given who is producing the movie, not because he's not interested in story. His puppetoons could create great stories and stuff, but he's very fascinated, fascinated as a visual artist uh, on creating this world, and that's what interests him more. And Byron Haskins, more known for visual effects direction anyway. Uh, but we get to see the, the vision of them and they basically all see the same way that James Hart sees. Yeah, it's like the <laughs> Martians are colorblind, apparently. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Only can make out certain greens or something like that. They make a point of telling Sylvia, like, now, Sylvia, you'll see what the Martians may have seen in you. And I'm like, ew? <laughs> Question mark? They can see inside me? I had no idea the Martians were horny for her. What? Are you implying, Mr. Scientist? Man? I don't know. I'm just operating an eye. <laughs> the Martians are wearing those like comic book x-ray glasses all the time. <laughs> you can see your dress. <laughs> yeah. We came down to see naked ladies. <laughs> the Martians. The Martians are not interested in our resources. They're... <laughs> They're just a bunch of fucking just teenagers to... sneaking into a locker room. Yeah. <laughs> Martian porkies. What, yes. What if the Martians <laughs> were butt porkies? 
Uh, it's just, just hanging out in the gym shower, looking <laughs> through a hole, hole in the wall. They scream, and then you see that same Zoidberg shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Uh, they study the blood for five minutes. They go, "This might be very important." And he goes, "Well, that's too bad because we've got an atomic blast coming soon." And uh, <laughs> out of all the, I want to play with the military toys. <laughs> <laughs> Nope, nope, too bad. Hey, Put your mom. dumb microscopes away. Yes, yes, come on. Science is for fucking pussies. Get over here. <laughs> Blow some shit up. Yes, yes, yes. But, but technically science created the atomic bomb. Shut up, nerd! <laughs> <laughs> Get that guy wedgie. <laughs> Shut up, Julian Murphy. Nobody likes you. <laughs> uh, so they go for the atomic blast. And there is something unnerving to me that had nothing to do with created special or sound effects, though. And the sound effects in this film, of, of anything that impresses me the most, is actually the sound work in this film. The sound design is incredible. <laughs> I find something unnerving about the uh, cars, that the military cars that are going through the different streets and uh, uh, announcing that the atomic blast will go off because the voice coming through the bullhorn sounds both human and manufactured. And it's like sort of unnerving. It's like hearing Alexa. Like I'm like, this doesn't sound right. And it terrifies me because I'm like, we're all going to die. <laughs> like for some reason that that sound of that guy going like the atomic blast will go off. It just creeps me out. Uh, but they go in for the atomic blast. They send out the, uh, the flying wing to go after it. And uh, of course, it doesn't work. Does nothing. Yes, exactly. And that's when somebody said, get Julian Murphy in here now. <laughs> All right, let's go back to the blood idea. Yeah. <laughs> get the um, square jawed nerd back in here. Yeah, well, well, in order to do it, we have to uh, move the, the equipment. And whatnot. We get it, nerd. Now get it in the truck. Uh, so they all plan to evacuate the whole in the event that it didn't work. It was going to be a mass evacuation to the mountains, which they actively say is kind of just for show. <laughs> like they're just like we're aware we're all we're all going to die, but we can inspire hope, right? <laughs> and so they evacuate. And something that I didn't think about until the second viewing that I did in preparation for this. Byron Haskin worked in silent film initially. Obviously, we saw that he stood up against Michael Curtiz and his bullshit. The evacuation scene from Los Angeles is very much shot like a silent film. And not just from the fact that there's no dialogue, so it means nothing. It's angles. Like, a lot of these angles in certain places and the way it's edited together kind of felt like watching like a Battleship Potemkin Russian montage sequence or like a biblical epic sequence with everybody like fleeing Egypt to go to the, uh, to get to the Red Sea. There's something about it. I turned the sound off to see if I was correct on this. It virtually seemed to match shot for shot. Every kind of angle you would find in a silent film to connote some kind of speed or energy when you don't have the luxury of sound, maybe only an accompaniment at the theater. And I was very impressed by it. And in a weird way, if it weren't for the sound design being so impressive, I could shut the sound off on this movie and understand every single aspect of it because the dialogue doesn't really mean much except for the opening and closing. And all of the imagery is poised especially to communicate to us what we need to know without saying a goddamn word. In a sense, it's very good at pure cinema. 
I think that may be one of the reasons why it's on the AFI list that high at that time. It does its job very efficiently. Uh, but that evacuation scene, too, there were stories behind that. with Because uh, you watched the same documentary as I, Mickey Moore, the uh, AD, which, by the way, great name, Mickey Moore. Like I like that name. That's a good name for a, for a crewman. Mickey Moore, get over here. <laughs> um, to put, some, put a light up or something. Um, the LA exodus I thought was interesting is that these locations were very difficult, Mickey said. In, uh, in the fact that you're in the middle of Los Angeles and showing an exodus of people with packs on their backs, cars overloaded. We worked on Sundays on most of the shots made down through the streets of Los Angeles because we had more control. The policemen had a better chance of blocking the streets. And we wanted some of the shots to look desolate with nothing. So they were comboing shots shot outside on a Sunday with these desolate streets on the Paramount backlot. It's, it weaves together very well. Like it does a very good job at connoting that this is Los Angeles and that's doing no small part two to the, um, miniatures being so fucking detailed. Like the way they were commenting on it, it's just like these miniatures are more detailed than they had any right to be essentially. And it works very well for when the Martians are coming through and destroying the city. Uh, with not just uh, their heat ray, but also their skeleton beam. And I got to say, of any film I've seen from this era, <clears throat> it feels the most realistic. And one of the reasons that I think it did that is that they took time and attention not just to what they're placing in front of the screen, but how they're setting the camera to do so. They showed an outtake uh, from... Uh, ben Burt and uh, Craig Barron's featurette of of one of the uh, Martian plates going through, uh, which, by the way, these these Martian machines are molded out of clay and then built out of copper. The machines are going through with the miniatures, and the miniature in specific on this outtake plate is one of the buildings on fire with the pyrotechnics being shot through the miniature, right? And I love learning about frame rate. They had to wait with the Technicolor camera, with what they're filming with all these plates, they have to wait before the shot starts to get it up to 96 frames a second because it takes a while to do that. And that was to allow for the realism of these flames to viably work. And I love learning that kind of a detail of just like, you made the extra step instead of just like having some guy with a blowtorch going, fire away, Jerry, and then it's suddenly just shooting out unrealistic flames. Like, everything here feels real. Uh, and because this is something that's not specifically causing any direct harm, it's a responsible, practical effect. Um, so the scientists are trying to escape with all their lab equipment. Uh, they get separated because Sylvia leaves in a school bus and leaves Forrester behind, so I guess she doesn't love him that much. Um, and uh, the rest of the movie becomes him trying to find... Sylvia, and then trying to find a truck because he loses it to looters. I think that's the most terrifying scene in the movie is all those looters basically knocking him to the ground and beating the shit out of him. Uh, and the whole idea of that guy with the briefcase full of, this guy was the smart looter. He went to the bank. He went to he went to Jared and <laughs> got the diamonds uh, and just tells him like, yeah, nothing matters. We're all, we're all fucked. Goodbye. And then he gets pulled over by MPs asking, what are you doing? And he's trying to find the truck with all the lab equipment. He's trying to find Sylvia. And 
the MPs can't make head nor tail of him because at this point he uh, is kind of making no sense to anybody just walking into this movie all of a sudden. But he does remember what Sylvia said about the church. So it becomes race to the many different churches of Los Angeles. And uh, eventually he finds her. Uh, but in between that, it is just an excuse to watch more of the des destruction of Los Angeles. Uh, and more power to it. It looks amazing. When he finally meets Sylvia, that's when we start seeing, oh no, the Martians, they caught a cold. <laughs> now, you can see wires on these Martian ships. They're inescapable. That does not deter from their power. Uh, but I found really, what I found really cool is we were talking about film prints and like what, what would have the audience of the era be seeing compared to us? Arguably, the definition rate is just better for us overall. But we're pretty close to what they probably saw back then. Those wires are hidden well enough, and our our eye is drawn to the to the Martians anyway. It's not going to matter. But when the Martian ships or when the Martian machines are crashing, the the piano wire that they're on, which they're on fifteen different piano wires to basically haul these fucking monstrosities. They weighed a ton, apparently. The st the wires start to collapse and it looks unrealistic. So the solution is, well, if I put some telephone poles up in the scene that have wires across, when it goes down, it won't look as ridiculous. Even though I can see both in effect, I liked that thought of like, well, can we eliminate the wire? before we have to result to eh, just do what my friend Ed Wood does and say, fuck it. Uh, it's kind of cool to watch them kind of come up with a solution like that and to learn about the solution too. Like these era, these special effects movies of this era fascinate me because conceivably you and I could take $600 and do stuff like this. Not like we're not going to build elaborate miniatures or have access to copious amounts of copper to make a Martian machine. But we could do stop motion. We can do some practical effects with like slate miniatures. We can have fun with that world. And everything about learning about these films makes it fascinating as a filmmaker to learn about. And I want to know as, as somebody who makes films far more frequently than I do, is there something fun for you in kind of learning how these effects are made at this time and realizing how accessible it is? Yeah, uh, our a film invasion of the twilights we had to have a, a saucer uh you know fly through space and then land mm -hmm. on earth and the final form ended up just being digital like mm -hmm. photographs and then me just animating in after effects but the original plan was to like i got a a, a pie saucer and then put a string through it mm -hmm. and then colored little windows on it and just you know drag it in front of the camera yeah and didn't look great but um but it looks fun and no it, i i threw it out and did with the like i did the photographs and the animation instead, but right. But, but the you, original plan was to actually like physically in front of the camera, but just string it along, and it was fun to try, but it didn't. You work did very well, but you did end up doing like the more digital version of something we've talked about before with um, stop motion or um, early blue screen, essentially with uh, catastrophe. Oh um, yeah, with the giant, the giant cat. cats. Yeah, you kind of did the same techniques, just on a computer, but you had to apply the same logic that they would have had to apply back then. Uh, and in a lot of ways, you're almost kind of having to like create certain 
visual acumen that's similar to something like a Harry Hausen would have to imply, or these guys would have had to imply in order to adjust for scale. Um, so the Martian ships crash, and we get the one last grasp of the Martian hand going like, heart dead. I actually love the way it's the hand coming slowly out and then just drops. Like, there's no, I need to see the eye one more time and then the eye goes out. It's just one simple communication. Again, no dialogue needed, no nothing. Like, no soliloquy going like, ah, blasted viruses, if only we had done our job better. <laughs> uh, and Maybe we were the monsters all along. <laughs> <laughs> Who do they get the voice of Martian to do that speech? <laughs> <laughs> Who do they get? Orson Welles. Orson Welles. <laughs> oh, curses. If oh, only. It's an Easter egg from that radio play they did. Cool. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Speaking of Easter eggs, there is a thread throughout this entire film that is probably the most charismatic character ever, which is the radio announcer that's going through the crowds initially, and then later at the A-bomb site is just recording the historical record on tape. Uh, that was the direct homage. They knew... Apparently, they knew they had to put that in um, because that would have been the most contemporaneous reference that they had prior to this film's existence. So, and because it was such a huge event uh, across the nation, regardless of how legitimately impactful it was on scaring people, the press covered it enough that it was already a pop culture phenomenon. They had to do it that way. Those sequences where they're showing the different people reacting to the radio, listening to the radio and whatnot on it, they're kind of cool. You know, you're you're getting a worldview sense of it. They are trying to build scope out of this film, and sometimes through editing, sometimes through clever camera placement, they're succeeding. And that radio announcer doing it is really cool. Like it's a great homage to the Carl Phillips um, uh, right outside of the farm uh, scene, but. The Martians die. Cedric Hardwick comes back and goes, and uh, as you all know, COVID defeated the aliens, and uh, good night. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't end without a final shot at a church and people on a mountain singing a hymn. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little ham-fisted. <laughs> yeah, well, the prayers were answered, so. Yeah, yeah, I guess they, <laughs> they, they were delivered like a miracle happened. Yeah. Um, but it's so funny though that um, this seems like a divine miracle to them. But um, technically, in order for that ending to happen, science needed to happen. <laughs> Something that this crowd may not be hot with. <laughs> uh, uh, God invented science, so that yeah, uh, is that still it? still still working through him. Is that what you're telling me now, Pastor Brad? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there was discussion <laughs> uh, when they were making the film. It was just like, you know. How Christian is this going to yeah, get? Yeah, how Christian the message in this movie. You know, you're, you're already uh, you know, walking a fine line of hedonism with these uh, outworlders coming in and mm-hmm. uh, making uh, them aware of that, you know, the earth isn't the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. So it, we got to put some more Christian themes in here, guys. I wonder. Sell tickets. <laughs> I wonder, though, because this is 1953, and I mean, this is around the decade where the word God is placed into the Pledge of Allegiance yeah. for, for some stupid reason. Um, it really was to di- differentiate them from communists because communists yeah, are atheists. But 
I wonder what it would have been maybe 20 years prior if maybe this would have been a little bit less Christianity-centric. Because Christianity isn't like a huge hit-you-over-the-hammer thing that people are interested in portraying in their films. That really happens in a post-atomic Cold War era. Yeah, there's much more separation of church and state in, then. In that respect, it would have been cool to watch this film made not too long after the broadcast or maybe before uh, and see how more, how much more fascinated they might be in science. Because I think part of the reason why they lacks on developing the blood thing any further is that if they do that, then they remove the idea of divine intervention and that church ending where he's going to all these churches and every pastor is praying. And it's, it's something that I didn't ponder too much in the first viewing, but in the second viewing, I'm like, something's uneven here. <laughs> uh, for a sci-fi movie, there's uh, far less science and a lot more fiction. Um, and that was my dig at religion for the day. Uh, good night. <laughs> uh, now this film premieres, uh, is very successful, very well received in terms of its uh, uh, critical analysis. Wins an Academy Award for visual effects for Gordon Jennings, um, our illustrious visual effects supervisor. Uh, and really, in terms of influences on today's film, or films of today, we talked about War of the Worlds by Spielberg and whatnot. It had the E.T. reference in there. I think it's very, it's a, tes it's a testament example to the ambition that we want to see in visual effects and not just you know, placing a pie pan on a string and having it dangle in front of us. Like, if there's anything I learned about the in the making of these visual effects, it's similar to King Kong, where it's, we want this to be believed. So we're going to look at every detail and make sure we're getting it right. And I wanted to get your opinion on this. As somebody who is more versed in... uh appreciation for modern fare um, or more uh, maybe like like blockbuster era onward. There's been a plethora of visual effects films that have dominated the culture for the last close to 20 years now. And what we've seen this year is some of these effects houses and effects artists finally starting to unionize and not get treated like shit. But I have noticed that as time has gone on, these very, very lovely visual effects that were pioneered in uh, from Star Wars up into Lord of the Rings and stuff have become diminished a little bit in a B-movie fashion. And a lot of that has to do with the way the artists are treated. But I want to know, like, how do you feel about... No, can you tell the difference between maybe the latest Marvel release versus something like a more meticulously designed, uh, cared-for film like A Lord of the Rings in terms of its visual effects. Can you notice, do you notice a difference between like one visual effects piece versus another these days? Oh, for sure. I, I was uh, watching Endgame a couple nights ago um, and just marveling at how realistic, like, you know, a good chunk of that movie CGI. Yeah. Uh, but even their modern shows don't hold up to that <laughs> level. Yeah. Um, what five six years later um 
and overall, I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of backsliding because I think they might be, you know, there's, there, to some extent there's a, you know, getting just too accustomed to the computer doing the work. And so yes. maybe there's a, the critical eye that was there as it was getting to a really good point of looking really good is maybe just taking for granted. Mm-hmm. The other is, yeah, they've been cranking out a ton of content for streaming. So mm-hmm. yeah. at a certain point, you got to say like deadline's a deadline. It's going out as is. Um, Which I think is sort of a, but that's the thing like that I've noticed in the way visual effects artists were treated back then versus maybe now. I'm not saying that they were maybe treated like kings back then. Like obviously they had to work with whatever budget they were given. Yeah, like, and, and just inventing it on the fly. Right. But the the rate of expectation seemed to be different and they were not afraid in some cases in taking their time more often. Um because if it's a if it's a big studio like Paramount, they want their movies to look good. They don't want them to look like garbage. Now, if you're going over to Republic or Monogram or whatever, they don't care. You know, slap a fucking again, pie, pie tin on string. Totally works yeah. as a spaceship, right? Put dude in a suit. Or in monster. one of my favorite MST3K uh episodes, which I think is Teenagers from Outer Space. Uh, the the giant monster that eats people is just a fucking lobster <laughs> crawling across the screen. Uh, but I I see that this lack of attention to detail and patience on producers' parts is diminishing a field that should be treated with care in order to make your stories uh, extra special. Uh, Something that I like learning about with George Pal is because he came from animation, not from filmmaking, from animation, which is filmmaking, but you know what I mean. Because he comes from that world, he then transposes it into the live action world, but he understands the difference between making it look good and making it look like crap. And because he is minded towards that, he is able to communicate to his team what he is needing within the time that is given. Whereas I don't think Kevin Feige knew how to properly schedule out his films and give somebody like Victoria Alonza time to actually complete visual effects for the films and television shows that they've been putting out recently. I think he did. uh, I think he did well, you know, the first couple phases of the movies, but I think once they they overload themselves with television and movies. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm more mean is that like once you're trying to put out all of this content that wraps around it, he always he says something in that that's quoted in that MCU book by Joanna Robinson that I've gone through, which is really good. Uh, it's about like instead of worrying about creating all these universes, just stick to the story in front of you. And it's like, well, you're not doing that either, because <laughs> if you did, <laughs> also in his defense, a lot of the Marvel stories are good guy punches bad guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, but so is this technically the writing it, retreat should be at like how do we not do that story? Yeah. Well, they take and with War of the Worlds, they're basically take, taking Martians, kill people, and they're finding creative ways in which to sell that idea. It's not that they get away from the idea; they're just finding a way to. Uh, I don't even think it's about believability. I think it's just creating excitement around the concept. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's it's blockbuster spectacle for that time. Like, yeah, hey, come look at the cool things we did on film, like. You'll think it's real. Yes. And I would, I want to tread lightly on saying this because I think all visual effects artists working, especially today, 
are just as much artists as the ones we've talked about on this show. I think that when they're overworked, they're putting out work that doesn't match up to things that I would care to watch. And that's sad. That has more to do with working conditions. But it sounds like because this visual effects team was treated by respect, treated with respect by its producer, Gordon Jennings and his team, uh, Gamora, uh, Ken Strickfadden, all these guys were able to create something pretty fucking magical. Yeah, uh, same thing happened on the original Star Wars. Yes. Like George Lucas got behind those guys like, hey, I don't care how long it takes. Like, I'll fight with Fox as much as I have to, but like, I want this to look good. Yes. And yeah, like I said, today, you know, a lot of the expectation is, well, well the computer will take care of a lot of it. So you don't have to invent anything. You don't have to, uh, you know, try harder. Like, the computer's mm-hmm. going to do most of the work. You just have to, you know, paint it and move it around and tell it what to do. The one, and there's also the other element is a lot of these technologies that we were talking, I was talking about how we could do these effects today. Like, if you and I wanted to do a stop motion animation film, mixed with live action footage there's a whole documentary on the making of king kong that literally tells us how we can do that practically but there's some things that have gone away in the process some things that haven't held up like camera technology Uh, optical printers are expensive and usually antiques at this point the computer usually does your quote-unquote optical printing for you in fact the movie archaeology bit which if anybody out there picks up the criterion watch that after the movie they they said something very depressing, which is, we don't have access to an optical printer, even though I'm Ben Burt, <laughs> the guy who created the sounds that filled your fucking childhood dreams. So we had to put, we had to recreate, we did a recreation of these effects, but we had to lay them in with the computer. Now, they still looked amazing, about the same effect as an optical printer would. Like, I could not tell the difference. But it didn't make me realize, like, oh, yeah, that that cool physical technology that existed is very much an antique now. And it sucks because some of that still looks amazing. And I'm fairly sure Star Wars was still using optical printing for a lot of its effects um, in 1977. A lot of that stuff didn't end up going away until maybe the 90s. So it's it's amazing how within 30 years, like something that incredible has kind of gone to the wayside. Um, but also this idea of Instead of relying on the computer, these guys were very much crafting intricately these miniatures. These miniatures are kind of the secret star of the whole show. Um, and I guess if anything, like the thing that it inspires is when you it, it's a film that can give you a good example of how to suss out good special effects today from bad special effects because this film analogically teaches you about specific detail. Um, it's not the same as maybe the thing from another world where that's more relying on stunt effects and monster makeup. Um, and it's not really the same as Gojira or them where, yeah, it's got the one optical print, print effect. This is a film that's engaging nine out of the 10 key effects modus operandi for this era. The only one it really doesn't do is stop motion. Uh, and if it did, it would be another grand spectacle of it. But it's cool to kind of watch how, because they had to do these disparate parts, each individual department had to be like, okay, I need to be on my A game with everything that's going to be going on screen because the other team's going to be on their A game as well. And rather than rather than like partitioning everything out of different houses, they're all very much in the same vicinity. They're just working in different quote-unquote departments, but they're all virtually in the same building. 
so I think that there's a loss of unity to a certain extent, as opposed to, oh, send the final Avengers uh, sequence over to this effects house, but then send the time travel sequences over to this effects house. Like, there's no unity in that. And that's why some effects in a movie look great, but then the other effect the next minute looks terrible. There's no unity to it. There's no teamwork in it. Hmm. Um, and it's mostly out of trying to squeeze a dollar. Uh, so I think it's this is a good testament film to what visual effects are and what visual effects can be. Um, and if anything, it also teaches you, like, all the effects in the world will not save your story either hmm. because this movie's fun. I'd watch it, but it's a four out of five for me because this story is kind of weak, which sucks because they're given a great source material. The one thing that I realized, Ray Harryhausen said that if he was going to do it, he would set it in Victorian times. And I'm not going to lie, that's the version I probably would have preferred to watch because <laughs> I'd love to see Victorian aliens, like kind of like steampunk, I guess, uh, would be a lot of fun. Um, but it does give you that sense of like all these special effects will never really fully will be can can be your movie, but it also helps to have a good story in back of it. Um, yeah, I'd rather watch the new War of the Worlds or Independence Day. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing too. Is yeah. that like Independence Day does a good balance of that? It does. Like like you've in the Spielberg War of the Worlds, like you're invested in those three characters. But Independence Day, I do enjoy, like, they have 20 different characters going on, that thing. It's an amazing ensemble. Yeah. And this sh could be an amazing ensemble as well. Um, yeah. I think it being 86 minutes is one problem. But there were other there were other scenes deleted that were, one of them was apparently more character-based, but it was a shot. <laughs> I loved hearing about it. It was a scene where Anne is violently reacting and shaking from one of the aliens, and Gene smacks her around and goes, everything's going to be okay. And apparently the audience just fucking giggled too much, and so somebody apparently was like, cut. Uh, but yeah, like that War of the Worlds that Spielberg did, you know, it's yeah, it's not the novel, but it's a good story. Uh, and I think, I think it manages to elevate while maintaining a detailed look at its effects work. Uh, one that is paid attention to and curated and specially designed. Um, now, Brad, before we wrap up, I want to know, just as somebody who doesn't normally travel in the Golden Age Hollywood circle, um, what is the feeling that you get watching some of these special effects films or sci-fi films from this era? Like you can watch them on MST3K or something like War of the Worlds here. What's the emotion that comes to you when you watch them? The emotion? Yeah. I know you're a robot, but the emotion. Yeah, I guess I just say like, oh, that's quaint. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, does, is, there, is there any form of joy out of it, I guess? I don't know if I'd say joy. I just I, more like a scientific curiosity, I guess. Of like, <laughs> well, know. scientific curiosity. Say, so you know what you sound like to me? Historical cur curiosity, I guess. Yeah, huh? but you know what that sounds like to me? Data. It sounds like a Vulcan. Vulcan. It sounds like a Vulcan. <laughs> um, and with with oh, with, I see where you're going with this. Yeah, but Brad, I want to thank you for coming to talk about this. And no, given that, the, it's you, logical for you to do that. Yeah, and given your Vulcan nature, though, I got to tell you, we, we want to have you back because I love having you back here. It's always great to talk to you. I'd find that agreeable. A punk, a podcast <laughs> mentor of mine. Yes. Oh, yes. You 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 find this all agreeable, huh? I yeah. Okay, I, gotcha. I, well, what if I told you that the Ballyhoo's never done television before? I believe it. 
Yeah. Because um, I have yet to see an episode that yeah. mentioned a television show exactly. in the header. Um, now, what have you ever heard of? Um, have you ever heard of space? I'm pretty sure I have, but refresh my memory. What's space? Well, it's the final frontier. Oh. Um, uh, and the that's a shame. Yeah, no more frontiers. Yeah. Well, the the second to last frontier was podcasting, so we're in the second to last frontier. Gotcha. Now, we're gonna go to the final frontier, but in this final frontier, there happens to be a uh, a starship called the Enterprise. Uh, Enterprise is right. I think it was what it was called initially. Um, now, it had a mission. Uh, it was a very long mission. I heard it was just five years. Yes. It's not that long. But that's, that's still pretty long. Uh, but they were out in space there to explore strange new worlds. And seek out new life. And new civilizations, yes. And I've been told that they boldly went where no man has gone before. Well, that's sexist. <laughs> they really should go where no one has gone before. Oh, well, I heard they changed that in 1982. That's smart to do. No, Brad, let's talk about Star Trek next time you come back on the show. Awesome. And you told me. So we're doing Next Generation? I don't think that fits in the golden age of Hollywood, but cool. Yeah, it's fine. Damn it, definitely do that. Slash Brad, no. <laughs> the line must be drawn here. 1968, this far, no farther. Uh, I will make them pay <laughs> for what they've done. <laughs> to my time machine. Uh, no. We're going to talk about Star Trek, the original series. Uh, Gene Roddenberry's baby creation that spawned an entire multimedia franchise. And you told me your favorite TOS episode, but I wanted to pitch this to you. We're going to do... An entire rewatch of the original series, <laughs> Start episode well. by episode. Well, <laughs> I have thought of that, but time, time permitting, we can always do that over time. But for this uh, flagship episode, so to speak, think of this as the enterprise of the entire... Starfleet. The cage. The you, pilot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just the alternate title will be called the cage. Yeah. The cage that I put Brad in. Um, no. We're gonna do the trouble with tribbles, which is your favorite TOS episode. Yes. But I want to ask ask you, are you willing to double dip or double down and also talk about space seed? Ooh. We'll Gosh. do a ba- double bill. One hour, half hour episode or two half hour episodes. I don't know if I have time on my schedule for but, that. But, well, good news <laughs> is, guess what? You get it's not half hours; it's hour longs. Well, fifty minutes. But like, yeah, I guess that's true. Fifty is half an hour. Uh oh. But I think credibility down the tube. I think it's important to not only talk about triples because it is one of the most accessible uh, Star Trek episodes you could find out there. Yeah. But Space Seed is also the quintessential. Yeah, I mean, without it, none of us would be buried alive. Buried. God, no, uh, I'm not going to do it. I will not ruin my voice right now. <laughs> yeah, no, let's do it. Yes, let's do it. Um, let's let's boldly go where no one has gone before. Brad, before you go, what do you have to plug? Uh, well, obviously, uh, I'll plug the uh, Rindlers podcast, the uh, foundation for this podcast. Yes, yes. Uh, without um, this, there wouldn't have been Shamley, and without yeah, Shamley, wouldn't have been Valley. You take all your motivation and ideas from that podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So, yeah, uh, what else? Not really making any movies right now, so I can't plug that. Um, but people can go to your website and check I out some of your I do have a website. Work. Yeah. Nebulousvisions.com, nebulous without an O. Um, that but that has, sounds stupid. <laughs> that has, yeah, 25 years worth of work on it. Um, summer 2024, there's going to be Nebulous Visions Film Festival. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the most exclusive film festival in the world as it only has my films in it <laughs> for a whole day. Uh, Ooh. Got about 10 hours worth of content to program. Can I raise my hand to well, be you're already doing it, so to, you don't have to, to ask. Well, <laughs> this isn't a video podcast, Brandon. But I thank you for telling me and telling people that. No. How about I how about I or somebody within our pod family? You need to get somebody on the stage at that festival to quote unquote be the curator that or the historian that interviews you on stage. And you've got to go on stage in an eye patch and old man makeup as if though you're talking about your career decades after the fact. <laughs> Think of like every John Ford interview you've maybe seen a clip of and just basically do that. I don't think there's going to be time for it. I just told you there's 10 hours worth of videos to play. I'm trying to play everything. Play everything? Yeah. Everywhere? So All at once? Exactly. Okay. Well, not everywhere, just here. Okay. Um, Damn, it's not a multiverse. Um, uh, also plug, we're, in, we're recording this in the Bug Theater, so come down to the Bug Theater yes. and enjoy... Shows that range from comedy to uh, film to uh, charity, benefit, all kinds of experiences. You can rent it out. Um, yeah, bugtheater.org. You can look at the schedule. Yeah, um, you've got uh, live. Uh, the Growlicks are here every. They were here last night. Every month, right? Is it every? Every month. Every month, yeah. Like Saturday. Yeah, great comedy show. Yeah, every last Saturday of the month. Nerd Night's here every last Friday of the month. Every last Monday, there's Freak Train. Come on down for five minutes. Uh, you can either sign up and do some act of your own for five minutes, or you can just come watch everyone do their thing. Yeah. Uh, we've got trivia every last Tuesday of the month. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much the last two weeks of the month are just solid. Yeah. Stuff Emerging Filmmakers Program as well. Emerging Filmmakers every third Thursday of the month. Mm-hmm. Come down to the Bug Theater, ladies and gentlemen. It is phenomenal. And thank you so much for hosting us in the Bug Theater to record this episode. This was a treat. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah. Um, I'm, and I'm super excited to talk about Star Trek with you. I know. We, we, we got to schedule that sooner I than I want to come back on something that I know a lot more about. I know. I'm, that's why I'm excited because that last year, your geek flag is going to fly so high. <laughs> and it ties into our time period. So it's going to be fucking awesome. But that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Value Review. You can find out more about us on the back half of the program. Please tune in to Kawaii, a look at Japanese horror on YBR Presents. And until next time, folks, good night. And remember, if you go outside your door tonight and you see a skeleton beam, well, just take a deep breath and remember that was no Martian. It was Thanksgiving. That line doesn't work. Cut. Good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod and now on threads under the same handle. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost and our introductions were done by Henry Jarvis. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs> <laughs>